isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the North Pole, the election podcast from the North about the North. My name is Jo Williams and this week I'm joined by three expert Northern election analysts to look at what the manifesto pledges of the past week mean for the region. Joining me in the studio is Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science at Manchester University. Hello Rob. Hello. And down the line we have Ariana Giovannini, Interim Director of the Think Tank IPPR North. Hi Ariana. Hello. And Henry Murison, Director of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, which lobbies for greater power and investment in the North. Hi Henry. Hiya. So this week seemed a good opportunity to dig into the manifestos we've seen over the past week or so. Last week saw the Greens, the Lib Dems and Labour all launch their spending pledges while the Tories unusually chose Sunday afternoon as their go-live moment. So I just wanted to start by asking each of our guests uh, how much difference we actually think the manifestos will make this time. Um, before looking specifically at what they're promising for communities uh, in the North. Rob, in 2017, the manifest did a- manifestos did actually count, didn't they, in, in a way that may, perhaps they, they don't usually. Um, but equally, there doesn't seem to have been much of a poll bounce off the back of the Labour or Lib Dem manifesto launches, um, maybe a bit early to tell from the Tories. How much uh, of any of the manifestos do you think will actually cut through? Uh, well, as, as a rule, um, manifestos tend to matter more if they contain something that becomes a negative story um, than if they contain stuff that just kind of reaffirms where voters think parties are uh, anyway. So last time, the Conservatives' manifesto became a big issue because a couple of things in it uh, really sort of took on a life of their own and reinforced the kind of anxiety that certain sections of the electorate had that the Conservatives would uh, take stuff away from them uh, and that they represented certain sections of the electorate at the expense of others. So the dementia tax became a big deal, fox hunting became a big deal. Uh, it seems the current Conservative manifesto is determined to be motherhood and apple pie all round and extremely bland, uh, so they're trying to avoid that problem. Uh, on the Labour side, I think they're, they're promising even more radical spending than last time. And the issue that, that Labour may have, John Curtis has talked about this as well, is voters may discount the promises by their concerns that Labour aren't actually competent to, to, to deliver on them. So they may say, oh, well, all of that sounds really great and it's lots of money and we're, that's very welcome, but we don't believe you can actually deliver it. So that could limit the impact. Henry, we'll come on to some of the specific promises in the manifestos in a minute, but was there anything that jumped out to you as a potential game changer, even if it's just in individual seats? So I think the the kind of, if you look at the kind of electoral maths, don't you, what, who are they trying to speak to and who are they trying to reach out to with these manifestos? So I think that from the Labour position, it was very clear that they had they were seeking to kind of touch certain buttons and that that would help them in certain seats. So there definitely is a they have a concern about some of their heartland areas. And so although 
Jeremy might not be campaigning in those places, some of those offers were directly targeted, I think, at people that they their concern might be might be leaving them. And so the the kind of it's the lever vote that I think Labour's manifesto was most focused on. Um, and so it didn't feel as urban or kind of metropolitan as kind of a, a traditional Labour manifesto. I think they've pocketed those places, to be honest, Jen, in their own minds. They think they're less at risk. And so the the way in which they were targeting their asks and i think what where the the broadband pledge came from was it was very much targeted at communities that were outside cities for instance and it did reference back to inner cities but very loosely um, and i think that's the that's a very different type of labor manifesto to the traditional one the tories obviously was all about a retail offer again to leavers and so um, i think both parties have knuckled down that they think this election will be decided by people who voted to leave now it is more complicated than that because in reality, many people live in communities where lots of people voted to leave actually voted to remain in the European Union. And I think it's that it's that intersection, isn't it, between where are there people who live in communities that have been affected by deindustrialization and kind of wider decline, but actually wanted to stay in the European Union. And I think if that group of people responds to Labour's manifesto, which I think is what uh, McDonnell certainly was seeking to achieve the way it was structured, then that could help them in some of those places where perhaps the leave vote is, is less likely to stay with them. Yeah, we kind of come back to the towns, the whole towns debate again, don't we? Um, Ariana, what was your initial response on reading what the main parties were promising? Did, was there anything in there that surprised you? I, I did find quite striking that both political parties seem to have a, a degree of commitment to devolution in their uh, manifestos. And on the one hand, this seems to, to suggest that uh, the campaign um, that, that you've been leading and, and with the other newspapers about power up, power up the North um, really seems to have uh, has cut through in a sense and shows that uh, issues of regional inequalities and the role and place of the North are important for political parties. They do recognize the importance of that. But at the same time, um, Manifestos are also quite thin on the on the actual devolution plan. So if you if we look at what Labour has proposed, uh, they offer to reestablish the government offices in the region. They propose to create an elected Senate of the regions and nations. But again, um, government offices in the region is that actually enough? Considering that previously these were not directly representative uh, bodies, and for the elected Senate of the regions and nations. Um, how will this work in practice when we know that devolution in England is a patchwork? And so how do you solve the problem? Who is going to represent the English regions and the North in, 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 in that Senate if Labour was to, was to win the election? And on the other side, if we look at the Conservative Manifesto, they do have promised to devolve power to all places across England. They promised um, an English devolution paper. They promised to continue to invest in citizen and growth uh, uh, deals. These are all very welcome proposals. But again... What we lack are uh, the details of how this uh, uh, will work in practice. So I think what I found striking is, is that there is a general understanding that that devolution is becoming increasingly important. The regional inequalities have to be addressed, but at the same time, this also highlights that there is a need for whoever gets in government after the next general election to get devolution right once and for all. Yeah, I mean, it felt. I don't know whether you agree with me, Rob. It felt as though in the two main manifestos there was kind of signalling towards the English devolution, but other than. Uh, Labour. Labour obviously is talking about moving part of the Treasury up north, but I think as I've, I've heard Henry say this before as well, you know, it very much depends on what the North's interaction is with that part of government. And it feels as though both parties have picked up on the complaints outside of London about the need for more power. But actually, when you scratch the surface, I didn't see much 
evidence of like real wholesale movement of power outside of Westminster in those manifestos? Yeah, I, I would be a bit sceptical about these kind of offers. It feels like warm words, uh, frankly. Uh, and I think since time immemorial, what parties like to do with regards to the general discontent with the in- institutional structure is to offer warm words, warm words on the House of Lords or warm words on devolution. But when you see the absence of any kind of specific plan, uh, you think, well, what will happen is... You know, it's very Sir Humphrey, isn't it? You put it out to consultation, you kick it into the long grass and say, we'll come back to this in a few years and we'll definitely have a definite plan that will solve this. And then, strangely enough, other things just always seem to take precedence. I mean, ultimately, both of these parties and their leaders are not instinctively devolvers, I think. I mean, Boris may be a little bit more than than Corbyn and MacDonald, actually. They like to run things from the centre. They believe in the power of the central state. And so I think that they recognise a need to talk about the issue because people are saying it's a concern but at the moment it doesn't look like talk that's going to translate into action frankly no i mean it feels kind of and boris johnson i think has got kind of to some extent an instinctive understanding of aspects of this from having been mayor and i think i think you can kind of you can dismiss that but i think some of that probably is genuine i think there is a a bit of a kind of understanding in that respect i i will believe um you know for the, for the kind of Corbyn side of the Labour Party, having been out of power essentially forever, to me, I'm still a bit sceptical that they're going to walk into Downing Street and immediately hand it over to people like Anti Burnham, you know, back up in the regions. It just feels kind of slightly counterintuitive. I don't know, Henry, were you, were you kind of, did you feel convinced by what they were saying around de- English devolution? So I think I think it's really interesting. Andy Burnham, before even the manifestos, when we just saw the, the capital spending plans, when the, the Chancellor and the Shadow Chancellor came to, to Liverpool and, and to Manchester, respectively, uh, at the start of the campaign, he made the kind of assessment that kind of Labour had lots of money for kind of the regions, including the North, but weren't really that committed to devolving how it was going to be spent. And the Tories had lots of ideas about how the governance would work, which was, was back to the manifestos around this concept of kind of devolution for everywhere, which is something we've, we've campaigned for, so we were very welcoming of. But it's very unclear exactly what fiscal transfers will happen, and all the structures in the world aren't going to close the north-south divide if there isn't money behind it. So I think I think Andy's assessment, it's one we come to ourselves actually, is a really fair one, which is that it's a double-edged sword, right? You've got to have a government that's prepared to put genuine money into rebalancing the economy. And the best way to spend that money is by devolving it, not by recreating government offices and essentially just giving business people and trade unions and councillors a say over it. It's actually to, to give that money directly to the elected mayors. And there's an inconsistency, of course, that Labour promised devolution in Yorkshire because that's something that Jeremy has promised as a retail policy before because they think it's popular, but said nothing really about devolution outside Yorkshire, which, to be honest, when you go to a place like Cheshire, right, that's full of marginal seats, Cheshire and Warrington, people there, in, certainly within local government, have wanted devolution for years. And it's really easy to deliver. It does seem a bit of a missed opportunity not to at least talk about devolution more widely. And I think that there are bits of that Labour establishment who are um, not as committed to the devolution project as others. And so you talk to Peter Dowd, an ex-councillor from the North, you, put, you speak to, to Tony Lloyd, the MP for Rochdale, who was the acting mayor. These people are genuinely devolvers. But how much is the Shadow Treasury team and them, I think they're the people who are on the side of the evolution, winning against what is quite, in terms of the the opposition's office, a status group of people who don't really want to trust the rest of 
society, particularly local leaders, to help make the country fairer and instead think it can all be done from Whitehall. And I, I think there is a real risk when you look at the railways policy as well, it could be massively centralising public ownership. And was local control and democratic accountability to local communities a big enough part of Labour's plans? I don't think it was, to be honest. I think it was it was a little bit the dog that didn't bark and it could have been a massive theme of Labour's manifesto and, and helped to, along with cooperatives and other models, make people a bit more relaxed about state ownership. And instead... They were talking about monoliths. They weren't talking about genuine public control. Public control doesn't necessarily, and it shouldn't mean control from Whitehall. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard Michael Hesseltine talk about this before as well, though, that, you know, in order to properly devolve in England, that means an existential threat to people who are fighting for power in Westminster. So, you know, why would you necessarily expect MPs to be massively up for that? You know, you're asking them to hand away power and look how hard fought power is at the moment for the centre. Um, so I can't say I was massively surprised that there wasn't a huge amount of kind of meaningful devolution stuff in the manifestos. I suppose at least it was in there. Um, <laughs> better than not. <laughs> better than none. And, and, and you know, the, the idea that part of the National Infrastructure Fund under Labour would be based up here is, you know, it's not a, a bad thing, is it? It's just that, as, as you say, you know, the devil's in the detail, as always with these things, isn't it? And you can apply that to any other bit to the manifestos, whether it's social care or any of these other things. Uh, are you are you optimistic, Ariana? Either way, if, you know, regardless of which party gets in, uh, where English devolution is concerned? Well, um, I, I, I agree with what, with, with what uh, Rob was saying, that actually... Um, um, these are both the main political parties are basically parties that are not uh, instinctively in favor of devolution. They kind of recognize that something needs to be said in the, mani- said in, in, in the manifesto, but at the same time, the, the, the details are missing. I think, uh, however, that if they do not uh, begin, whoever gets elected, if the next parliament does not uh, recognize the potential that devolution has just to uh, address those persisting uh, social and economic inequalities that, that cut across England and affect the North as well as other English regions, then they're missing a big opportunity because if the next parliament will continue to be dominated by Brexit, as most more likely, this is very likely to happen, but at the same time, if Brexit continues to be the single issue that determines uh, the work of the next parliament, then not, nothing will be done in practice to address uh, those inequalities that divide uh, our country uh, at the moment. So I think devolution really offers an opportunity to address this. And if the next government doesn't address that, they will miss a big, a big uh, chance there. Mm. Well, um, I wanted to come on actually to a, a specific area of uh, pledges in the manifestos. Uh, which is an issue that we've all campaigned on uh, and and relates pretty much to what you were talking about then, which is uh, infrastructure in the North. Um, We clearly as Northern newspapers have been uh, campaigning quite hard on this for some time. So have IPPR North and the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. So let's take a look at um, what we've been promised on that side of things. Here's uh, Jeremy Corbyn. I want to bring our divided country together so that we can get on with the real task of delivering the real change that Britain needs. You all know that in your own communities and societies. To drive that change, we will unleash a record investment blitz, getting the economy moving in every corner of our country. There will be no no no-go areas for the investment strategy that we have. 
that's, that's about the jobs at the end of your road. It's about breathing new life into your area, reviving your high street, that wonderful sense of community that there used to be there in every high street all over the country. Our investment blitz will upgrade our national infrastructure in every region of England and every nation of the United Kingdom. And it will rebuild our schools, our hospitals, care homes, and the housing so desperately need. This will be investment on a scale you've never known before, in every town, every city, and every region. So, um, Henry, to me, the Tory manifesto kind of felt like a safe holding position where infrastructure investment is concerned up here, um, whereas Labour's obviously clearly, as you heard there, kind of promising to build uh, Crossrail for the North uh, as part of their kind of borrowing spree. What was your reaction to the pledges on Northern infrastructure in those manifestos? So I think, I mean, all three of the main parties, right, are, are supporting Northern Powerhouse Rail really prominently. And I think I'm, I'm quite relaxed about, about Labour's name for it because it, it means the same thing, right? So it's, the name is not, not the important point. So all three of the main parties, including the Lib Dems, actually, who we, we probably haven't talked about enough on this uh, call because I think they are in this space uh, quite interesting because of their they're kind of very much more vocal on infrastructure than I think they have been in the past and I've noticed a massive change in this campaign in terms of how much particularly their local candidates are kind of supporting the kind of connecting Britain campaign which is kind of pro HS2 pro NPR I think on HS2 I was really I was really heartened by the kind of Labour's very explicit commitment and talking about extending it to Scotland, which I think is a, a really positive idea, certainly in Newcastle, which is the kind of ancestral home of IPPR North where it started, was really well received because people in Newcastle, where I used to work and live uh, a number of years ago, have been campaigning for HS2, not just for run-on services, but for a new line as far as Newcastle for a long time. I think that's a very long-term aspiration, We're talking decades and decades there, but I think it's still certainly going to go down well in certain parts of the northeast in particular. I think the change of language from the Conservatives on HS2 was really noticeable, Jen. So that commitment to work with Northern leaders and Midlands leaders, which I think is code really for talking about Andy Street, obviously who's also on the Okavi review that's been looking into HS2, um, is, a, is a response to some of the work we and others have done, kind of lobbying and also doing policy work on how big national infrastructure should be delivered. So the reality is this is northern infrastructure, not just national infrastructure, because northern priorities should be national priorities. But that also means that you know, those key figures like the Metro mayors, people like Judith Blake and Richard Lees, who run the big cities, as well as wider kind of business leaders, as well and kind of the civil society in the north, need to have a say over how these projects are developed to ensure they deliver the long-term benefits economically, not just that they work as transport projects. And so I think although clearly the Tory manifesto is the least positive when it comes to HS2, they have moved their position, not massively, but significantly. Um, and I think that is a sign that post-election, HS2 probably, regardless of who the Prime Minister is, will be safe, which we didn't know at the start of the campaign. And there was still a real risk that the Tories, in order to keep particularly their own backbenchers happy, might have promised some things, particularly between London and Birmingham, where we know they've got some political issues with many of their backbenchers who don't like HS2. I suppose there's a question about which HS2 
uh, is safe, though, isn't it? I mean, if you look at what the, the number that the Tories put in their manifesto against HS2, I think they put 81 billion against it. Well, they're saying that their borrowing rules would give them 100 billion over five years. So that would be almost all of it gone on HS2, which sounds slightly unlikely to me, but I, I don't know. Did you, Ariana, did you feel like the arguments that have been made by Northern organisations on infrastructure, did you feel like they'd had an, an impact when you read those manifestos? Well, I think that um, it, it did have uh, an impact. But again, also on this topic, I would have liked to see like a proper commitment because, as it has been mentioned before, yes, both the Tories and the, and the Labour Party also like mentioned the fact that uh, on the Tory side there is a commitment to the Northern Powerhouse Rail. But again, the manifesto seems to suggest that the Leeds and Manchester section will be prioritised. And that is a, a, a good step, but it's not quite good enough. Because we know that if we want to um, if we want to see real change happening in the north, we need to see a commitment to the full northern powerhouse uh, rail uh, project and not just parts uh, of it. And if it's true that um, on the other side we've seen uh, the Labour Party promising like long-term investment plan and delivering the crossrail for the north to improve connectivity across uh, the northern regions. And again, this is good, but again, we lack details for obvious reasons. I mean, uh, Labour can't use the language of the Northern Powerhouse, but there is a question there to be asked as to what would happen then to existing bodies um, um, like Transport for the North or Metro Mass within uh, within uh, this framework that, that Labour uh, proposes. And in the UK, there is a tendency uh, when there is a new uh, government coming in, especially if the political party leading it changes, to get rid of what had been done by the previous party. Now then, if, if the Labour Party was to be elected, I guess we really need to have clarity as to what would happen to what has already been done um, in the North, what would happen to bodies like Transport for the North, and also like how we uh, would make them the most uh, out it. On the conservative um, side, good to see um, for the commitment to the Northern Powerhouse Rail, but again, not very promising on HS2 and whatever happens to the Northern Powerhouse uh, Rail um, project that needs to cover the entire North and not just a part of it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think if you, the, the detail of the Tory pledges around Northern Powerhouse Rail is kind of uh, vague to say the least. I mean, it does commit to the Manchester to lead stretch, which hasn't been officially costed, has it? I mean, I've heard yeah. 10 billion put on it, but it's not actually costed in the manifesto. Then they say, oh, we know we'll have a look at Liverpool. We'll have a look at Teesside. We'll have a look at Newcastle. I mean, it's the kind of open-ended warm word stuff that Rob was talking about before with devolution. Um, so, you know, it, it makes potentially quite a nice headline, but what does it actually mean in in, in practice. Rob, I, I, I mean, I remember at the last, certainly in 2015, there was a lot of kind of senior Tory appearances in parts of places like parts of Greater Manchester, where they were clearly really pushing the idea of infrastructure. You know, they knew that in places like Bolton and places like Stockport, people were getting onto overcrowded trains in the morning and they were really angry about it. Um, do you think that um, what the Tories are kind of promising this time is kind of enough to attract people on the doorstep? Or do you think that it's just kind of not really necessary that massive an issue in this particular campaign? Well, I, I think it has risen up the agenda somewhat. Uh, I mean, obviously, Brexit is drowning everything out uh, to some extent, even more so than, than last time. But when you look beneath the surface of Brexit, things like transport and infrastructure have moved up the list. The environment has also moved up the list. So there are very different segments of the electorate, relatively poorer, left behind, quote unquote, type places 
very keen on infrastructure, but also more environmentalist voters in relatively wealthy places also want to see public transport infrastructure invested in properly. So I think it is sort of drifting up the agenda. And I reckon if it was a Conservative government and Brexit was sort of got done, quote unquote, I mean, it's not really got done, but if we symbolically move on from that, it'll, it could move up the agenda quite quickly after that. Uh, I guess the, the, the problem from the government's perspective is there are relatively... There's relatively little short-term electoral reward ever to long-term investment because people don't see the dividends until quite a long way down the line and normally after the next election is done. And there will be a lot of short-term demands on government money. And the Tories are trying to run a tighter ship on the spending front than, than Labour. And they've got social care coming up. There are the costs associated with Brexit, which is very uncertain, but which might be substantial. Um, and... Those kinds of issues, NHS as well, of course, too, which is right at the top of the agenda just behind Brexit, those kind of things could end up crowding out the infrastructure story again. Um, and so you might end up with half a loaf at best because they end up, their attention gets dragged back to these other things. It's interesting because um, Saji Javid made this speech in Manchester at the start of November where he said that um, he was relaxing borrowing rules that it was going to mean, and he said specifically it would allow him to borrow up to £20 billion uh, more a year. The manifesto actually only allocates about a quarter of that to anything and just leaves the rest for some kind of magical future budget. Um, why do you think he's doing that? Are they trying to keep their options open? Are they trying to avoid looking profligate? Both? I what, think it's both of those things the and a third is thing, which that. is that one of the lessons they learnt, absolutely burnt in, learnt last time, is making very specific and detailed commitments to big resource spending on something like social care reform can really backfire on you if voters don't really understand what it is you're doing. So, you know, if you look at the detail of the social care policy, there was a lot in it that was actually reasonably sensible and solving some serious problems with the, the issue. It's not how it went down. So I think they want to keep their options open. They want to say, here's the broad direction of travel we're going to go in, and here's a pot of money that we're leaving open to provide us with some firepower to do it, but we're not going to tell you exactly what we're going to do. We'll explain it all once we've got in. Uh, so also I think they're probably also keeping some in reserve in case there's economic disruption about Brexit, which of course, as they're very pro-Brexit, uh, on the campaign trail they're not ever going to really talk about explicitly but I think any kind of cautious uh, chancellor would be hoping to have some money in reserve in case there's any kind of a bumpy ride. Mm -hmm. um, so I just finally I just wanted to kind of ask everybody whether they think uh, well what they think the biggest priorities uh, should be for the next government beyond Brexit um, and whether those things were actually in the manifestos or not. Um, something that jumped out to me that had started to be talked about was regional equality in a way that I've not seen before. Um, but, I mean, Rob, do you think that, that the appearance of regional inequality as an issue in the party manifestos, is that something that's really a direct result of the EU referendum and of, of the change in kind of the power balance in different constituencies in this country and where the, where the dec decisive uh, electorates are? Um, or, I, I mean, uh, and do you think that they can afford to kind of politically ignore the idea of regional inequality? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's accelerated a, a trend that was underway for some time now. So it would have come onto the agenda at some point, the way the electorates of the parties are changing, but it's it's sped that up dramatically. Uh, so we're now in a situation where the electorally pivotal seats for both parties tends to be places that are relatively starved of infrastructure, that are ageing rapidly, that aren't sharing necessarily in the 
growth and prosperity of the core cities because the core cities are strongly labor the more rural and fringe suburban areas tend to be strongly conservative and it's these uh, towns and outer suburbs who are sort of the places in between those have become the really crucial crucial marginal seats and a lot of those places voted quite heavily to leave uh, thus signaling really a lot of discontent with the political status quo so i think they are now on politicians agendas in a way that wasn't true before the referendum and the the, the sheer fact of their electoral competitiveness I mean, this is the blunt truth if you want money out of politicians being a marginal seat is a great way to get it and a lot of these places are going to remain marginal i think for several cycles to come yeah henry did you did you feel that there was enough uh, around regional inequality in the manifestos and, and did you is there anything else that you kind of feel should have been in there that wasn't I think if you think about the kind of, we go back to the kind of ingredients for what would actually close the North-South divide. So infrastructure definitely did get covered and you can you can always argue that you would have liked to see more, for instance, uh, particularly say around more detail around control of the railways, for instance, for Metro mayors and for the North. But that's because they haven't worked out yet what the answer to that is in terms of the Tory manifesto. So it's not that they're hiding an answer, they haven't, they haven't worked it out yet from what I can work out. I think the the bit I would say is around education and that kind of disadvantage gap in education. So education hasn't really been an issue in this election yet. And I think the challenge you have in the north of England is that many of those seats where people voted to leave, and you look at some of the worst schools in the country, in the most challenging areas, they're in places uh, like Whitehaven, for instance, that has one school that, that's one of the worst in the country that's been in failure for years. That is a local issue. I mean, people in that community care about that school and the fact that it's not done well as it should have done and it hasn't been turned around yet and i think when we go uh, we're going tomorrow up to uh, whitehaven uh, with jim o'neill making a speech there and the areas he's going to cover are areas like devolution and um and also around education because the whole point around skills and, and education is that's probably where the north's going to make the biggest strides in terms of productivity and it's disproportionately in the most disadvantaged communities where we have some challenges, those are relatively evenly spread across some of those core city inner cities that we know are safe labour, but also those battleground seats. And so it, and it is a real electoral issue for voters who voted to leave. Many of them have got kids that go to some of these schools. And I think that what has been missed here, I think particularly from Labour, is what's their offer on education and improving school standards. Do you mean, they have lots of rhetoric around the National Education Service, but they haven't really used Angela Rayner or other spokespeople to talk about education this election. They talk predominantly about other issues. And I think that's a real missed opportunity, I think, in terms of where the Conservatives are weaker. Clearly, their spending plans on education disproportionately benefit their leafy seats that they already hold with big majorities. So although they are spending more on education, in terms of retail policy, it's not particularly well targeted if it was about electoral politics. I think Boris Johnson's education policy was as much about getting the leadership as actually winning a general election. It was about putting money into schools that undoubtedly do need it in areas that might be leafier. But the problem is that that's left him hugely exposed where even quite small amounts of money targeted would be the right message to be able to get educational progress in places like Keithley or similar seats in the northwest. And I think they've missed that as an electoral as an electoral gambit. And I think they may come to regret that in some of those seats where 
in the end, that might be the issue that actually on local voting kind of basis is going to determine people's thinking, but it hasn't been in the national campaign. And so that will all be shaped by the local candidates and people's own perception of their lives, not by anything they might have read in the media. And, and for the main parties, I think that's a huge mistake to not have gone after that, that potential pool of voters. Yeah, it's interesting. We had um, the editor of the Sheffield Star on uh, last week and I asked a kind of similar question, like what <clears throat> what issues that are kind of pertinent to your area have been overlooked in the campaign so far? And she said exactly the same thing. She said education. She talked about having, you know, some of the most impoverished schools in the country on her patch and that being a really kind of massive, massive issue uh, locally. I mean, in fairness to Labour, they do have a very expensive education section in their manifesto. Um <clears throat> But I also think that you're right. We haven't heard that much from Angela Rayner on education over the course of this election. Like I have seen her pop up talking about various things, but in terms of actually kind of cutting through and talking in simple terms about about what it will mean, perhaps not so much. Ariana, did you feel there was anything missing from the main manifestos from from a kind of northern point of view in particular that perhaps should have been in there? No. I mean, I, I, I fully agree that um, there should have been like more details on um, infrastructures and that big uh, gap in terms of uh, education is something that I found uh, particularly um, disappointing, uh, really. Um, if I can add a comment on like what should be the priorities of, on, of, of, of the next um, government, uh, I agree with what Rob was saying, that it, it is absolutely true that the electoral key seats are in places that have been uh, held back by austerity, lack of growth and investment. And so that issue of regional inequality is really like um, playing a key role there. And there is also like um, along this, there is also a growing divide between uh, big cities and non-metropolitan areas. And this applies to the north, but also to other parts uh, of England. And I guess the bottom line there is that we we, we, we believe the UK is the most centralized country uh, in Europe. And at the same time, it has one of the highest level of regional inequalities in Europe. And this is no coincidence because the two things are connected. They are linked to, um, uh, to uh, each other. And if you add also starts to the mix, uh, then you see that this has had also like devastating effects on the, on the north and, as well as uh, other regions. And that's why I think, uh, as I mentioned before, that there is a real need to focus on devolution because devolution of real powers and resources to the north as well as to, the, to, to other regions across England could really shift um, things around. And that's why I think that the priority of uh, the next parliament should, should be that of rolling a proper system and program of devolution, which irreversibly uh, shifts power to the regions, towns and cities, all of them across uh, England, so that they can really take control of their own economies and bridge the deep uh, divisions that centralization and has uh, helped to create. We will keep uh, banging that drum as well. That's all we've got time for this week because I've got to rush off to a Sadie Javid speech in a marginal constituency, inevitably. Um, next week we'll be into the home straight and hopefully we'll be bringing you some dispatches from seats across the north. We'll also have the results of the first massive constituency by constituency YouGov poll, uh, which is being eagerly awaited by commentariat and candidates alike. Thanks to all our guests for joining me and thank you thank you to you for uh, listening. If you liked us, please do write a review. If not, don't feel you need to. And until next week, bye-bye.